All right, Ezekiel 6. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate, and your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the cities shall be waste and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your mists, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave some of you alive. When you, ha when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have, broken over, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols." And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel. For they shall fall by the sword, by fam famine, and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them, and you shall know that I am the Lord when their slain lie among their idols around their altars on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols." And I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste in all their dwelling places, from the wilderness to Riblah. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. <laughs> what do you, how do you really feel, God? <coughs> <laughs> Good morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, I, too, want to thank uh, Daniel for his message last week. I couldn't tell if Ryan's thank you was sincere, but I think it actually was. It came across as insincere. Um, but uh, I know it wasn't. Uh, but I want to thank you for not only giving us the message of a prophet, but actually embodying uh, the passion of a prophet in a way that I cannot. And so I am uh, grateful that you did that. Uh, and we have some more hard things to walk through this morning. And so let me get at it. Uh, I, I want to just remind you of, of an overview of Ezekiel, remind you of where we've been, where we're going. Uh, the first three chapters, remember, talk about Ezekiel's vision of the Lord. Right? He sees him on, uh, above the cherubim on the throne. He's like glowing metal. And he sees this vision, and, and God gives him his call that he's going to be sent to a people in exile to preach this really tough message of judgment. And he's preaching after some, some people in Jerusalem have been sent into exile in Babylon, but the city of Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed. Remember that? So 
Jerusalem is still to be destroyed. And so the first half of the book, chapters 4 through 33, almost 30 chapters are warnings about this coming judgment on Jerusalem. And it's just brutal. 30 chapters of warnings of this judgment. The destruction of Jerusalem is coming. And then at and 33, then a, Jerusalem is actually destroyed. And a survivor comes into exile and tells Ezekiel what has happened. And once that happens, his whole tone changes, and the whole message now turns to this promise of hope and mercy that God's going to bring the people back from exile, bring them back into their own land. So you've got judgment and mercy, and just to let you know where we're going, we're spending five weeks, we're spending five weeks in judgment and five weeks in mercy, all right? Now, we're already one week through of judgment, so we only have four more weeks, so practically speaking, this means February is going to be really rough, and March is going to be great, okay? <clears throat> so that's what's coming. So we're going to talk about God's, uh, oh gosh, uh, God's judgment and wrath today. And I just want to remind us, when I use that word wrath, what I'm talking about, I don't know what that word raises for you, but I'm just talking about God's steady and consistent opposition to evil, to sin, to wickedness, all right? By definition, goodness opposes evil. And what I want to suggest to you is that God's wrath, his judgment, is actually, is a part of his goodness, right? It's good for good people to oppose evil. That's part of what it means to be good. And so that's why I started this whole series by reminding us of the character of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? You've got this lion who on the one hand is full of compassion and grace and wisdom and love, but he's a lion with claws, with teeth, and he's not interested in making peace with white witches, and we wouldn't want him to be interested in making peace, and we have this God who, who contains all of that in himself, this compassion and grace and love and mercy, but also this holiness and this justice and this steady opposition to sin and evil. And so today we're sitting with this side of who God is. And I just want to ask, how do we, how do we sit with this part of who our God is? Because it's such a c- consistent theme from Genesis to Revelation. So let's use uh, these chapters in Ezekiel to just kind of sit in, in this part of God that is, that is hard, but that is a very real part of who he is. So let's first, let's just enter into the reality of, of judgment that we just heard. And, and what I did this week is I, I looked at chapter 6, but also back in chapter 5 and chapter 7, just the surrounding chapters, and I just made a note of some of the things that God says uh, to the Israelites in Jerusalem here. Let me just give you some of these. These are tough words to hear. God says, I myself am against you. Okay, I want you to remember the image in chapter one that Ezekiel saw, okay? These wild, angelic cherubim, right? They're so wild. And then God, this one enthroned, he's glowing metal, there's fire, there's lightning. I mean, this is an awesome being. Imagine hearing that being say this to you. Okay? This is the worst news that anyone could ever receive. I myself am against you. I will unleash my anger against you. Now, I will spend my wrath upon you. I will not look on you with pity. I will slay your people in front of their idols. I couldn't help but be reminded of, of the passage in Hebrews 10 that says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. <laughs> and you Hopefully you felt that as, as Dana was reading this passage. Now let's remind ourselves, what is provoking 
this kind of language from God? Well, the answer is pretty obvious in Ezekiel. It is the willful and consistent disobedience of the Israelites over the years, in fact, over centuries. And if you read the book, I think their disobedience falls into two categories. One, there's a vertical dimension of their disobedience with God, and that is the issue of idolatry, okay? Idolatry is the core issue. That, that they, have, they have abandoned God. They, they're now worshiping other gods. We're going to spend the next three weeks talking about idolatry, okay? But that's the core issue. God is saying, you are, you are um, cheating on me with other gods. Whoring is, the, is the, uh, the translation that Dana had. Mine is a little bit softer than that. You, you have adulterous hearts, okay? Um, uh, so there's this, there's this vertical dimension, and then that's playing out in horizontal, uh, in terms of how people are treating one another, and that always happens. When we start worshiping other gods, it affects the ways we treat one another. Let me just show you a couple examples of the, the, the social evils uh, that are taking place. This is in chapter 22. Uh, the people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and the needy and mistreat the alien, denying them justice. In uh, you, slanderous men are bent on shedding blood. In you, one man commits a detestable offense with his neighbor's wife. And you men accept bribes to shed blood. You take usury and excessive interest and make unjust gain from your neighbors by extortion. So just giving you a taste of some of the social things. The poor are not, are not being cared for. There's, there's, uh, there's arrogance. There's just a lot of unfaithfulness. And, and not just one or two acts, but literally hundreds of years where Israel has been wandering from God. And so that is what's provoking this language of judgment and wrath. And just to remind you what, what the form of this wrath will take in Ezekiel. I mean, the wrath is coming from God, but it's not like they're going to, it's not like angels are just going to appear and, and do something to them. The form is a very human form. God is going to bring the Babylonian army, right? And they're going to sweep in and they're going to destroy the city. So the source is ultimately God, but he's using the instrument of this other nation to come and judge Israel and carry them off in exile. Specifically, it takes three forms, sword, pl plague, and famine, <laughs> So outside is the sword. If you're outside the city walls, you're going to get, you know, a, a, someone's going to come in and slaughter you. Uh, inside are plague and famine. Some of you might get, you know, you might feel safe inside the walls, but they're going to starve you out, and you're going to die of starvation or famine. Uh, those in the country will die by the sword, and those in the city will be devoured by famine and plague. All that to say, the judgment of God coming on his people, and it is very real, and to use the word I keep coming back to, it is very awful, I think that's very clear as you hear this passage. And so what I, what I want to do today is, is wrestle with this together. How do we think about this? And as I thought and prayed about this, I realized there's basically two things that I want to say about judgment, about God's judgment, that I think are important. Uh, and he, that's all I got for you, two, two ideas about judgment and then a, a way to respond. Uh, the first is this. As hard as judgment is, it is for us to acknowledge the, the inherent rightness and even appropriateness of God's justice and judgment. And Ezekiel goes out of his way in these chapters to, to help us see this is completely appropriate. It's not pleasant, but it's absolutely right and appropriate and just. If you turn to chapter 7 with me for a second, let me just show you a couple places where he does this. 
Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. The end is now upon you, and I will unleash my anger against you. But here's the point. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will surely repay you for your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Look at verse 8. I'm about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. Look down at verse 27, the second half, the very end of the chapter, second half of that verse. I will deal with them according to their conduct and by their own standards I will judge them. The point being, what I am doing is utterly fair and utterly appropriate. You have, we, we entered into a covenant together. You've acted a certain way and I'm simply responding in perfect accordance to what you have done. You see that? And I think that's, that's important just to acknowledge there is a rightness, there is a fairness to God's judgment. And, and that's important because I think in our culture today, a lot of people think of a God of God of judgment and, and their first thought is, gosh, that, they just think of this God doing these things and they go, that, that just doesn't feel fair. Like that, I, that feels unfair. And what I want to say about, about God's judgment is this, it, it is, what it is, is it's precisely fair, <laughs> That's the thing it is. It is 100% pure, unadulterated fairness, pure justice. And I think sometimes, again, we think of God's judgment as something that he starts actively doing that he wasn't doing before. And in some ways, I think it's actually kind of different. The reality is God has been actively restraining something for a long time. And that's, that's what he says. And he says, uh, you know, it's his, it's his compassion, it's his patience, it's his mercy that has been actively restraining justice. And now he says, I'm no longer going to let those things hold justice back. I'm going to take off the reins. And pure fairness is going to play out. I will treat you by your own standards. You're a violent people. <laughs> you will experience the violence of another nation. Okay? So the punishment fits the crime. And there's something utterly right and appropriate about it. And I, I would even go so far, this will sound weird for some of you, but I would go so far as to say, God can actually be glorified in judgment. Meaning, judgment is one of the ways where God's greatness can be seen, okay? It's one of the ways that, that people can see, wow, God, you are a great and awesome God, it demonstrates his holiness. It demonstrates his opposition to sin and evil. And so he can actually be, as hard as, here's to, here, as hard it is to say and hear it, he can actually be glorified in judgment. In the same way that a human judge, if a human judge was looking at a trial, there's no jury in this trial, okay, but someone has done a bunch of heinous things, and a judge looks at the evidence, and they make the right verdict, which is guilty, and they make the right sentence, and so we would say, yes, you are a good judge, or to go back to the character of Aslan, when Aslan comes against the white witch and defeats her, we say, yes, you are glorified. Your greatness is seen in your judgment of this person, okay? And I think that that's just important to acknowledge the, the, the inherent rightness and goodness of God's judgment. And I say that, and I'm going to give you about a three-minute aside right now, because I think we're living in a cultural moment in the church in America where this whole idea of a God who sometimes judges uh, is, 
is increasingly experienced as very offensive. And so you have people leaving in droves uh, the, the idea of this God of just sort of wiping their hands clean of this God of fangs and teeth and, and moving to a God who is only a God of love and mercy and compassion. God doesn't judge. People judge themselves. God lets them do their thing, but God doesn't actively judge. People judge themselves. God is a, a God of grace and mercy and only that. And that, that's a, we're in this moment right now where that's taking place. And I just want to say, and I've got some epic, epic um, diagrams to demonstrate this. <laughs> Um, if you find yourself in that place or you have friends who are in that place or you, you, know, you wonder, I just want to step back and at least ask us or our culture to, to consider the fact that we are in a very distinctive cultural moment and that our particular, I'm talking about our 21st century Western American culture is at a very specific cultural moment and we have our own very specific set of cultural assumptions and starting points and sensibilities and I just want to acknowledge those are not the, the starting points and sensibilities of cultures throughout history. They're not even the starting points and sensibilities of some of the other cultures out there that are not Western cultures today. And it's important to acknowledge that. Here's what I mean, and here come the diagrams. I hope this is not distracting but actually helpful. When you think about ancient cultures, okay, up through the last couple hundred years, or even other cultures today, their starting point, they basically started with there is reality out there, okay? God created it, or the gods created it, depending on what your religious standpoint was. But there, there is some reality out there, right? And there are us humans. Um, we're not snowmen, but there's my best shot at a human. And, and humans are looking at reality. And, and the goal of life is to, to try to conform your life to the reality that's out there, right? So that you live in line with what is true, with what is real. And so the human heart is fundamentally something to be trained, okay? It is something to be shaped so that, here it comes, it is in line with reality, right? So there's the, there's the, the formation of virtue, of, of certain uh, virtues like courage and perseverance that help you live in alignment with reality. And when your heart is shaped and becomes virtuous, then you, know, you are living in, in light of reality, okay? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Uh, with that assumption, it, it makes sense that there is a God who has certain standards and that holds human beings accountable for those standards. And when they don't live by those standards, that there are consequences to that. It, it just makes sense given that cultural starting point. It's not as offensive is my point, okay? Now, we're living in a culture today, and just think of pop culture in America today, that has a very different starting point. The starting point is not some reality out there. The starting point is me and the human heart. And so the goal of life is, is not to conform to a reality out there. The goal is to explore what are the desires that I feel? What are the drives? What, what are the passions within me? And the human heart is, is not so much something to be trained. It's something to be freed, right? It's something to be freed up to listen to what I experience inside of me, and then to, to live that out with passion, okay? And then reality then gets shaped by, by my heart. I, I start with what's in here and, and what are those deep drives and desires, and, and I give freedom to that, and then, and then 
reality gets structured around that. And you're going to have a different reality depending on how, where your heart starts. And, and that's okay as, as long as, as there's not uh, harm done to your reality. I can, we can live within our realities. So the starting point is a very different, different place. And let me just suggest that when that's your starting point, the judgment of God is particularly offensive. The idea that, that God has certain standards, certain realities that he's asking us to live by and that we don't, we're held accountable for. That is a particularly offensive idea. And I'm not trying to solve the offense of that for you other than um, to just say we need to acknowledge the cultural moment that we live in. And not, other, not all cultures in history and even today experience the judgment of God as offensive as we do. Was that helpful or was that completely distracting? Or just some comic relief, hopefully a little bit of both. And the problem is, you, you just, you can't, be, you can't leave behind this side of God. <laughs> because if you read this, well, you can't do it and, and hold to this book, is what I would say. <laughs> because you cannot read a single book of the Bible. Like, I, I would encourage you, start Genesis, go to Revelation. You cannot read one single book of the Bible without coming to a conclusion about God, which is this. He is loving and gracious and merciful and patient, and he is also holy and just. You, you cannot read a single book without arriving at both of those conclusions. All that to say my first point about judgment is we need to acknowledge it is right, it is fitting, it is appropriate that God, the God of the universe, can bring justice to his creation, okay? Oh, she got happy. Um, or he. Second point Having said that, that, he, that God can even be glorified, that, that who he is can be shown in, in judgment, I think it's equally important to say this. That does not mean that judgment brings God joy. <laughs> that does not br- mean that he longs to bring judgment, that, that judgment brings him pleasure. In fact, Scripture is clear, it is just the opposite. Okay, and let me show you two, there's, you know, so much judgment in Ezekiel, but occasionally God steps back and just gets us inside his heart. Let me show you two places where he does that in Ezekiel. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. This is surrounding a, a section of judgment. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. So turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Again, chapter 22, rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed. Get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So while judgment is appropriate, that does not mean God delights in it. Just the opposite. He explicitly says, I take no delight in this. This does not bring me joy. This does not bring me pleasure. Key question of the day, what brings God pleasure? Obedience, the word is right there in that last sentence. What is it? Repentance. God doesn't want judgment. God wants repentance. Repentance meaning when his people who have turned their backs on him are living their own way, when they stop and they recognize this is not the way to live and they turn back to God and they cry out and say, oh, we're broken, we're messy, we messed up again, Lord, have mercy. That's what brings him joy. That's what he wants. That's why all this judgment in Ezekiel, think think about this for a second, 30 chapters of judgment (laughs) Why so many chapters of judgment? 
It's not because God is sadistic and enjoys talking about judgment. It's because he longs for repentance. And so he's giving his people time and time again opportunity, opportunity to repent and to change because it brings him such joy when his children turn back to him again. And I was just thinking as a parent, I mean, just, just to talk real simply for those of us who are parents, isn't that what we want in the discipline of our children? Do any of us parents, hopefully the answer is no, do any of us parents delight in disciplining our children? No, we delight in the repentance of our children. I have a one and a half year old uh, daughter named Josie. Uh, for me, one and a half, uh, I guess I'd phrase it, she's smart enough to be spanked, if that makes sense. Um, she knows what's happening enough. Um, and she's only one and a half. But, um, so she can get a little, you know, swat on the tush, okay? That's how we run things in our household. No judgment on other parenting strategies. Um, but the other day, she's, she's, in the, um, she's in the tub, and it's time to get out of the tub. She loves the tub. And she knows. I said, Josie, you know, come out of the tub. And she literally crawls to the corner of the tub, farthest away from me. And so I, and, and I know where this is going, and so I just, it's literally just a gentle swat on the tush. Josie, time to get out of the tub. And it was, the, it was such a beautiful moment. I, it was the first time I literally watched her mind run through the pro list and the con list. <laughs> I watched, it watched it happen. And she got up and came to me, and I was so proud. I was like, oh. I didn't, want, I didn't want this. You know, it hurts me more than it hurts you. And we don't believe that as kids. But as parents, I was so stoked. I, I was filled with joy. And of course, she was happy too. And, and, and that is God's heart in all this warning of judgment. I don't desire anybody. I don't desire the death of anybody. Repent and live. That's what brings me pleasure. And I started thinking about Jesus' own teaching in the New Testament and all these stories Jesus tells about God's joy when his children repent, when people who are in sin repent. You know those stories, those parables? He says, God is like this woman who has lost this really valuable coin, okay? That coin represents somebody who hasn't repented, is a sinner. And she sweeps through the whole house and when she finds it, she's full of joy and she actually calls her friends together and, and says, celebrate with me, I'm full of joy. Or God is like this shepherd who's got 99 sheep and there's one that's wandered off and he leaves the 99, he searches and when he brings it back, he calls his, his friends together and says, celebrate with me, I found my lost sheep or most powerfully, of course, God is like this father who had these two sons. And the younger son said, God, Dad, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Give me my inheritance. And he went off, and the, and the father allowed him to do that. And then, of course, he, you know, he ruined his life. And, and at some point, the son comes to his senses. <laughs> and he gets up, and he turns around, and he literally repents. He, he comes to his senses, turns back to his father, not expecting anything except to be a, a servant in his father's household. And the story goes, you guys know the story, it says, while he was a long ways off, his father sees his son. His father's been waiting for his son. And his father loses all first century patriarchal dignity, pulls up his long robe and ch runs down his son, you know, big hug, smothers him with kisses, puts a ring on, basically reestablishes his status as son. Basically, no questions asked, no need to grovel, no need to say anything. You're back this is what brings me joy, your repentance, because what brings me joy is being in relationship with you. 
And of course, those stories are so reflective of Jesus' own ministry, of of finding these people who had been living these these dark lives, right? These really dark lives, but they found Jesus and they experienced repentance, they experienced his grace and mercy, and literally parties are being thrown. Meals are being had with wine, and the religious establishment is having a hard time with these parties, with these sinners. But Jesus is saying, I'm just reflecting the Father's heart. The Father's heart is not for judgment. The Father's heart is for repentance. That brings him great joy. And so that's what I want to leave us with this morning. We have this God who takes great delight in the repentance of his people. When they, wherever they are, they turn to him and say, Father, we need you. That's what brings him joy. Uh, I had a professor, I don't know where the quote originated from, but I've shared this with you before. I love this quote. Um, he says, he says, uh, there is no refuge from the judge, but there is refuge in the judge. And to me, that perfectly summarizes the message of Ezekiel. <laughs> if I had a sentence, that's the message. There is no refuge from the, God, from, the, from the judge. You cannot escape this God. You can pretend he's not there, but he's there and he sees everything. But there is refuge in the judge. So come out of hiding. Stop running your own way. Turn around and face him and say, I need you, and you will find great refuge in him. And so I want to ask you this morning, I want to leave you with this question, where do you need to hear this today in your own life? Where do you need to be reminded? There is no refuge from this God, but there is always refuge in this God. Where are you living life on your own terms right now? Uh, Where are you going to other places to get your needs met? Where are you just stuck in some sin that you know and you're like, I'm in it and I'm in it. I mean, and we all have a lot of stuff going on right now. There's a lot of greed. Uh, There's a lot of lust. There's um, a lot of fear. There's a lot of jealousy. There's a lot of controlling tendencies. There's deceit. Here's the thing. When, when, we're, when we're walking in sin, there's this interesting dynamic that, that happens. You're in some sin, and then you, you think of God, and you ex- when you're sinning, you experience him as judge, right? You, you know, like there's this God, and so, and it might be your own guilt or your own shame, but you, you're thinking, in my sin, this is the last person that I want to go to. He's the judge. He's the perfect. And so what we, we create this dynamic where we sin and then we, we try to hide it from him and then we move farther away and then it's just sort of this vicious cycle. There's the last person I want to engage when I'm sinning. And yet the gospel is we need to do the, the counterintuitive thing. That's precisely the moment where we need to turn the person that we're most afraid of facing is the person in that moment that we need to turn and say, I need you. This is scary for me, but I, I need you. And the gospel is the very moment we do that, we experience a God who says, what you just did brings me so much joy. There is nothing for you here 
but compassion and mercy and love and acceptance. You don't need to grovel your way back to me. You don't need to do penance. You don't need to experience shame and guilt for a certain amount of time. The minute you turn, I am like that father with the prodigal son. What you've just done brings me so much joy. And of course, the reason he is free to do that, I'm not gonna go into it, Daniel said it so well, is because Jesus took on himself the judgment of God on the cross. Right? He experienced that. So we can come to him and experience nothing but grace and forgiveness and mercy. So my question for you today is, where do you need to experience that? Where, where, where are you in sin? The minute you turn towards God, you free your own heart. You free your own heart and you bring joy to God's heart. So where do you need to do that today? I want to give us a little space just to do that within the, the silence of our own hearts. Um, and I think a good place to do this is uh, Psalm 139. I'm going to have the uh, worship team come up as I walk through this. There's this great psalm. Um, what time is it? Can someone tell me what time it is? It's 10. Okay. Um, maybe I will. Uh, this Psalm 139 of David where... He, he, he describes this God that we can never escape, right? Where can I go from your presence? Everywhere I go, you're there. And so he, he acknowledges, I can't run for you. So, so at the end, he just says, you know what? I'm gonna embrace this. So Lord, search me. <laughs> what do you find in here? What's offensive here? And, and I just wanna invite you into whatever this stuff is, knowing that with you, there is forgiveness. That I don't have to run from you. I can turn towards you and experience your grace and mercy. So let me ask you that. Where, where do you need to just turn back to God? Where do you need to invite him into some dark place of your life to experience him saying, that's exactly what I wanted. I just wanted you to turn. Now experience my love and my help and my comfort. So let's take some time. Let's take about a minute, uh, and, and then we'll sing a song connected with this song.